You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. We are entering the 32nd year of broadcasting with 21st Century Radio. That is a record, period. Actually, it's a world record. Uh, which has been was born in Baltimore in January of 1988. Our purpose has always been to introduce our audience to the new paradigm. Today, there are thousands of radio shows and podcasts that cover these same new age or new paradigm or paranormal topics, but back then, we were the only ones in the country. Sadly, One of those pioneering radio hosts, Art Bell, who created Coast to Coast Radio, a dear friend of ours, has moved on into the spiritual dimensions this past weekend. And he will be sorely missed. Thank you, Brother Art, for assisting and supporting the new paradigm movement and reaching so many people. Also, sadly... Since we've been on the air for over 30 years, many of our pioneering guests on 21st Century Radio have also passed on into the world of spirit. All of them champions of the new paradigm who can no longer be heard on 21st Century Radio, except you can, of course, hear their tapes. I'm talking about people like Brother Christopher Bird, our very dear friend and best man at my wedding, to Dr. Zahara in 1980. Chris Burr joined us starting in 1988 to talk about his books on The Divining Hand. What a book that is. The 500-year-old mystery of dowsing. And he also joined us with his co-author Peter Tompkins on the books Secrets of the Soil and The Secret Life of Plants in 1988 and 1989. In that same year, Dr. Barry Fell joined us to discuss his books, America B.C. and Bronze Age America and Saga America. And in 1989, Dr. Cyrus Gordon joined us to talk about his important work before Columbus. And that really opened my eyes and ears of our listeners about who came to America before Columbus. And then Dr. Roy P. Mackle joined us to discuss the search for living sauropods in Africa, living dinosaurs. And I will never forget the work of Sister Gloria Farley, whose 472-page book, In Plain Sight, Old World Records in Ancient America, was most fascinating. But unfortunately, all of those that we interviewed, that I mentioned, have moved on into the spiritual dimensions and can no longer be contacted physically. There are other ways to contact them, of course. Now, why am I telling you this? Because for both hours tonight, Our guest will be Glenn Kreisberg, the author of Spirits in Stone, The Secrets of Megalithic America, Decoding the Ancient Cultural Stone Landscapes of the Northeast. Of the thousands of books Dr. Zahara and I have reviewed from our perspective thesis, this book, that's, well, it's, this book is one of the top ten of the most important works that we've reported on. This is a must-read book, especially for those who want to understand the history 
of America's origins. Author Glenn Christberg is a radio frequency engineer, writer, researcher, licensed outdoor guide, and former editor of, of the author of the month page at GrahamHancock.com. He serves as director at large for the New England Antiquities Research Association, the editor of Last of Lost Knowledge of the Ancients and Mysteries of the Ancient Past. He is the co-founder of Overlook Mountain Center in Woodstock, New York, which obviously we need to talk about as well. And we are thrilled that my daughter Anna and her wife Elise will profit greatly because they are living in Salgatees in the Woodstock area and hope to open a restaurant in the area where standing stones are found. Oh, brother Sir Paul McCartney would be very interested in this particular topic tonight because of his interest in the United Kingdom's standing stones. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Glenn. Thanks for having me, Bob. Good evening. Um, I really enjoyed your book. I read every word in it. I did not read all of your index, though, so I can I have to confess that. Um, tell us about, before we start, tell us about Overlook Mountain Center and its various goals. Well, Overlook Mountain Center is a nonprofit we started about five years ago now. Uh, it came about because the land that some of these stone sites sat upon became threatened. It was about uh, 80 acres up on Overlook Mountain, um, which is a, a kind of a very important um, some considered sacred mountain in upstate New York, in the Hudson Valley. And um, what happened was uh, everybody thought this land was already protected, but it turned out that it wasn't. And uh, the people who owned it, in, as they aged, they uh, turned out needed money and they put this land on the market and it became a uh, trend. So some of the local residents uh, kind of sprang into action. We uh, organized and started fundraisers, some crowdsourcing fundraisers online, going door to door in the neighborhood around where this property was and getting the neighbors interested in protecting it. And um, we were able to get a local family foundation along with um, some uh, local residents to come up with the funds. And we uh, created this nonprofit so that the land could be purchased and protected and preserved and also researched. So um, we have this this property, and, and there is no physical Overlook Mountain Center, although one day maybe there will be, but through the uh, organization, we carry out outdoor education and, and workshops focusing on landscape archaeology and archaeoastronomy, and we've taken hundreds of, of groups um, on, on uh, tours of the property, showing them the features, the stone uh, constructions, the uh, effigies, their relationship to the sky, to the earth, um, to the plane of the living. And it's been a wonderful experience, and we've uh, hopefully opened a lot of eyes. That's just so fantastic. Congratulations. Glenn, you know, I wish other people in other parts of our country could have done the same thing instead of everything turning into more apartments and buildings, uh, that kind of thing. So, well... How did you become interested in this subject? Well, I guess my interest goes back to um, when I was a teenager, I was lucky enough to work in an antiquarian bookstore here in Woodstock called Three Geese in Flight. 
which still exists online. And, and the owner, uh, Sam Wenger, is a very good friend of mine. He's an authority on, and scholar on Celtic mythology. And he introduced me to a lot of books and authors uh, at, an, at, a, at, a, at a young age. And, um, and I was able to read, and this is going back 30 years when some of these books came out, and you mentioned some of them in your in your uh, intro, uh, Barry Fell's America B.C. and Saga Americana, uh, Salvador Trento's The Search for Lost America. Um, you know, I was reading Holy Blood and Holy Grail by Michael Bajet, uh back when nobody really knew what the Da Vinci Code was all about. Yeah. Um, so through this th- through this reading and, and uh, hanging out in this bookstore and reading these books, it just kind of got into me through osmosis, and I became familiar with a lot of um, mythologies and folklores and legends of, of different uh, cultures and ancient societies. Oh, well, then how did this book come about? Well, um, it was a long process. Let's put it that way. Uh, I I, I am a a radio frequency engineer. I I work designing um, the wireless networks that we all rely on to uh, share the information that's so important to us. And I was sitting on a town committee uh, probably a dozen years ago, I want to say 2006, that was trying to uh, it was a cell tower sighting committee so i was um involved with trying to pick a site for in the town to put the cell tower and part of that process was an evaluation of the land that the cell tower is going to sit on and some of the local residents again this is up on overlook mountain um uh during the public hearing process brought to the attention of the board that there were these stone constructions that they hoped would not be disturbed um so there were some uh, efforts made to protect them. Um, some uh, the cell tower was built. Some of them were unfortunately destroyed, but they were documented. And um, it, it began a process for me of trying to figure out and understand what these were, because they were not considered by the uh, historians, by the archaeologists who look at them, to be anything special. They were just considered to be kind of a dime a dozen stone pile left by, uh, you know, early American or colonial activity, which to me is still important and it's a cultural resource, but it's it's not something that's anchored, uh, ancient or necessarily sacred. But then there were people who were saying that these were something else and that they were not just the earlier colonial, early American uh, constructions, but that they might be Native American origin. And that, uh, that definitely um, got me interested in trying to understand them in their true cultural context and that's what got me involved with this group, NERA, mm-hmm. the New England Antiquities Research Association, because they were the group that the um, homeowners and the, the citizens who showed up at the meeting had referenced as, um, you know, a resource to understand what these could possibly be. So we reached out to them and they came and looked and, and uh, we ended up having some tribal preservation officers from the Stockbridge Muncie come and look. Uh, at some of these constructions, and they agreed that they probably were Native American, and probably this was a, a, a sacred site that we were looking at. So um, being an outdoor guide, I spent a lot of time in the backwoods and uh, exploring off trail, and um, I, I came upon a, a lot of these things in my own wanderings. And I had always just considered them, again, kind of uh, – what you'd expect to see in the landscape having had been built in over the last couple hundred years and, and occupied, 
but I started to realize there was a much greater mystery involved with some of these and, um, and, and began looking at them in a new way and trying to uh, kind of understand what their, what their true meaning could be. You really built a, a good bridge between your work and your type of research and 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 uh, the more those who who adhere more to uh, a, a very scientific um, well perspective, and and uh, have uh, have really been actually helping establish uh, a, a kind of a well a working a partnership with them, which I think was fantastic. That's a hard thing to do, and it has obviously had much to do with your research methodology. Could you tell us about your research methodology? Sure. Well, I, uh, I guess I would say I take the GIS approach, um, Global inf- Information Systems. I, I do uh, a lot of mapping and um, plotting of site locations. And what this allows you to do is you build a database of your different sites, the locations, the features, you know, the elevation, all the, all the data that you can gather. You put it into a database that allows you to sort uh, and filter and um, create thematic maps from the data. Mm-hmm. And this reveals patterns. You're, look, you're looking for concentrations of different features, distributions of different features and sites on the landscape. And um, one of the patterns that was revealed through this methodology was the relationship to the sites to each other and to events on the horizon such as uh, solstice and equinox sunrises and sunsets but there are also other patterns that are revealed having to do with the place names of where these locations were in the catskills here uh, which was settled by the dutch uh, a lot of the um, place names the calvinist dutch gave to the locations where the Native Americans held their sacred uh, ceremonies were Devil's, Devil's Kitchen, Devil's Tombstone, Devil's Acre, Devil's Path. All these are names in the Catskills uh, that kind of remind us that, okay, when the settlers first got here, they saw the Native Americans doing things. Of course, the uh, Dutch considered the the, uh, natives to be devil worshippers, so they gave these names uh, Devil to reflect reflect that belief. Uh, this incorrect belief, of course, because uh, the Native Americans were not any, anything such as devil worshippers, but much more practiced a form of shamanism that we would recognize. Um, so my methodology is to uh, kind of uh, understand these locations on the landscape, uh, how they relate to each other, and how they might possibly relate to events in the sky. Um you know, through the eyes of uh, archaeoastronomy and landscape archaeology. Well, with that, we need to take a break. And uh, when we come back with Glenn Kreisberg, we are going to be talking about his criteria, his site criteria. Here go the stones. Oh, gosh, that was a really strange time. The battle between the stones and the beetles. Remember the battle between the stones and the beetles, Glenn? I, yeah, I guess I do. I have to admit my age, if I, but I do, I do remember it. Well, I'm 74, so I think I'm probably twice as old as you are, right? Uh, no, but you, you, you got 15 years on me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now we know how old you are. We can figure it out now. Okay, uh, please tell us uh, about what is your site criteria? 
Site criteria. Okay, what makes the grade? Well, as I mentioned, there there's a, a lot of stonework out there in the Northeast. In fact, in an 1880 census, that the U.S. census, part of that was a uh, a stone fence survey of New England. They surveyed stone walls and stone fences throughout New England, and discovered in the census, it was reported there were 240,000 miles of stonework oh. in. The Northeast. So that's enough to reach to the moon or wrap around the earth 10 times, if you can imagine that. No, so, I can't. A huge amount of stonework. And it dawned on me that there's no way all of this could have been built in a period of time that the colonists and, and settlers and early Americans were here. In fact, there wasn't a population big enough to do this. Every man, woman, and child would have had to have built miles of wall themselves. So, so. How do you distinguish? So, so obviously, some of this was pre-existing. Some of this stonework was here already when Europeans arrived. But how do you distinguish that from uh, what is um, something that is Native American or indigenous and was here before? Um, from the the field clearing and the property subdivision and and the uh, uh, road making and all, everything that involves stonework quarrying. Uh, so it's in some ways a process of elimination, and you're looking for features at these sites such as stone walls or, or cairns, stone piles or, or dolmens, perched boulders, um, effigies, stone symbols, or alignments. And these are going to distinguish them, if these uh, aspects are present, from uh, early American or colonial um, constructions. So stone walls, what would be, make a stone wall special? Well... Most of the stone walls that we see in the Northeast that are associated with agriculture or farming or, or uh, land subdivision and surveying are, in, are kind of neat orderly walls that go in straight lines uh, that delineate property boundaries. Um, so if you get into the, the deeds, uh, you go to the local real property tax office in the county and you start looking at property deeds and reading descriptions and going back in time and reading uh, the property boundaries and trying to understand uh, the kind of the chronology of that piece of land. Sometimes you'll discover that these stone walls and stone piles were there from the very start, from mm -hmm. the very beginning, from the very first subdivisions. So other obvious things about stone walls is of course, if they serve no purpose, if you see they are not an enclosure, they don't appear to be uh, aligned with any property boundaries or if they're just not straight and they are curving and serpentine, these are clues that they're probably not um, colonial or early American, but more likely uh, Native American in, in their origin. Uh, same with, with Karens. Um, you know, if you see a pile of stones, it looks like it was just, uh, you know, made to get them out of the way and clear a field. And, and um, you know, they're just stacked up and, uh, and there are lots of piles of stones stacked up in the woods and in the meadows and fields in the Northeast. But if you come across ones that are really well formed and you could tell a lot of care went into them, uh, and there's probably something more to it than just getting them out of the way. And what we find in the in the Cairns uh, up on Overlook Mountain and in, in the other Cairn sites in the Catskills is we usually find them uh, on southeasterly facing uh, slopes of the mountains. We usually find them between a certain elevation um, you know, on the mountainsides, kind of higher up the slopes. Um, we usually find 
not always, but certain aspects of them that may contain donation stones, uh, stones that are not native to the area, quartzite or hematite, um, iron oxide, donation stones that are left on these piles. Uh, you can examine whether these stones are kind of part of the structural, um, uh, you know, if they're structural or if they're just placed there, um, you know, it, it, they could have a certain meaning. Uh, and and, and um, the same, same with uh, effigies. If we see a, a wall that's serpentine or a pile of stones that resembles a turtle, and we do see numbers of those, many yeah. of them, and there's a whole chapter of turtle cairns and turtle effigies in the book. Um, these, again, are clues that probably not uh, Amer early American or made by the settlers, but made by, by the, uh, the original inhabitants of our land. Uh, so shouldn't be that... Um, unusual to find a turtle symbol or a turtle effigy of stone in a site that's Native American because, of course, the turtle plays such a prominent role in the uh, mythology, specifically in the creation mythology of so many Native American tribes. It's mm -hmm. one of those stories that's universal um, in, their, in their creation story. The turtle is always featured very prominently. In fact, Native Americans consider North America Turtle Island, and this goes yeah. back to that creation myth involving sure the turtle yeah so uh, these are these are all uh i guess through process of elimination and deed research ways to to see if the site meets the criteria to be considered a, a potential native american sacred site or if it's just a, a you know a um a collection of stones that's left over from activity that took place during the uh, early early times of uh settlers and and, and you know american history your book has a, a wonderful um, forward by good old Graham Hancock. Tell us, tell us about your association with Graham Hancock. I have great, great regard for this man. Graham and his wife Santa are a wonderful couple, wonderful people. Um, I'm, I'm good friends with them and have been for uh, over a decade. It all started actually when I was reading uh, his book. I believe it was Underworld, um, and and there was a, a chapter on Malta, and the temples in Malta really fascinated me. And one of the things I noticed about uh, the temples that, from a bird's eye view, they very much resembled a uh, radio frequency pattern uh, with a, uh, a main lobe and side lobes and nodes between them, kind of like the uh, a glove on a hand or a mitten. Mm -hmm. um, a antenna pattern has a very specific sh shape to it. Depending on the frequency, the shape varies, but it does have a, a kind of a uniform shape. And looking at these temples on Malta, you know, some of the oldest structures on Earth dating back 5,000 years, I couldn't help but notice the resemblance and the commonality between the uh, configuration of the temples and this antenna pattern. So um, I felt compelled to point this out to Graham. I sent an email. I had no expectation of any kind of response, but he got back to me, uh, thought, said what, what, you know, the observation I, I made was, I thought it was interesting, asked me if I would be interested in writing an article about it. Uh, and, and, um, and he talked me into it and he published it on his website and it got a, a, a little bit of attention. It was republished in Atlantis rising, the magazine, uh, that you might be familiar with. Oh, sure. And, and it, um, 
it led to me going and giving a talk uh, in 2014 on the island of Malta, uh, the first international conference on audio, uh, archaeoacoustics. Uh, and there have been two others since then. And that was a fascinating experience and gave me a chance to um, uh, do some research uh, at the temples in Malta, having to do with uh, sound and frequency and energy and how they interact with the, the temples and the uh, specifically the configurations of the temple. Um, so, so that was uh, that was first how I, I uh, got in contact, and then we had um, met in person at the um, conference on procession and ancient knowledge CPAC that takes place uh, yearly out west, uh, sometimes in California, sometimes in Sedona. Walter Cruttenton is the uh, director of that conference. Uh, I've had the pleasure to attend uh, many times and was also a presenter in 2010. And um, again, gave me an opportunity to uh, meet some of the other researchers in this field and, and exchange ideas and um, get to know one another a little bit. So collaborate some. Well, obviously, there are so many interesting areas within your book that our our listeners will find as well. What what are your favorite or most interesting sites? Well, uh, you briefly mentioned the chapter on Dance Camera Point mm-hmm. um, on the Hudson River, and this is something any of your listeners, if they grab a map or go to Google Earth and work your way up the Hudson River from from uh, New York City on the west side, just above the, the city of Newburgh, you'll come across Danskammer Point, um, originally called Duval Danskammer by uh, the Dutch crew of, of Henry Hudson's ship on his third voyage the, to uh, his third voyage of discovery to America. He came up the Hudson River and on the evening, um, I believe of the third night, they passed Danskammer Point and saw a... Uh, a ceremony taking place with many Indians dancing around uh, rings of fire, and of course to the uh, to the uh, shipmates on on the half moon, they uh, saw this as as devil worship, and they called it uh, and and dance camera Duval dance camera uh, translates in Dutch into English as devil's dance chamber, and so dance camera point was always a place that interests me. Um, unfortunately, in the late 30s, it was developed into a power station. Uh, so anything that was originally there mm. was um, destroyed. But because it had the name chamber in it, it's, uh, the word chamber in its name, I always found it fascinating. Was there a stone chamber there? There are many stone chambers just across the river in Putnam and Dutchess County, uh, well known to a lot of researchers. John Burke did a lot of work on those. Um, so... I was really curious about Dan's camera point and it all came together about uh, two years ago when I started looking at the relationship between Dan's camera point, this very prominent point of land sticking out into the Hudson and the mouth of the Wappingers Creek, which is right across the street, uh, excuse me, right across the river, uh, right across the Hudson river from Dan's camera point. And just a little bit North, you'll see the mouth of Wappingers Creek uh, named for the, the tribe, the Wappingers uh, Indian tribe, that um, inhabited that area at the time of contact. And what I realized using my mapping tools, using Google Earth, was that the orientation of the mouth of Wappinger's Creek to Dance Camera Point was a perfect summer solstice sunrise alignment. And then the reciprocal from the mouth of the creek over Dance Camera Point would be the winter solstice sunset. So to me, this explained and, and kind of solved the mystery of why 
Dan's Camera Point was a ceremonial uh, place for the Native Americans. This is why when when uh, uh, Henry Hudson sailed up the river in 1609, he saw a ceremony going on at this spot because this was the ceremony spot. This may have actually been, in a way, kind of an Axis Monday or the the center of the universe for the Wappinger and for the local Indian tribes, um, realizing that there was a solstice sunrise alignment and sunset alignment with these prominent landscape features. It also turns out that the alignment of the winter solstice sunrise over the mouth of the creek during the course of that evening on the summer on the uh, summer solstice sunrises in that point. But what rises in that same point on that evening is Pleiades. And this mm-hmm. also played a very yeah. important role in the mythology of the natives of the uh, Hudson Valley. That's for sure. They, yeah. Yes, they they they've been that's been well documented. So Dan's Camera Point is definitely one of my uh, my my favorite sites. Uh, it's aligned on an equinox alignment with a wonderful site just a few miles to the west called Turtle Rock Ridge that has an awesome huge uh, turtle effigy. Um, uh, there's also some information on that, uh, photographs of that. There's a, a, a summer solstice, excuse me, a winter solstice sunrise portal up on that mountaintop, uh, as well as glyphs of uh, of the sun and what some interpret as a meteor event. There are these two uh, inscribed circular um, shapes that seem to be falling and having trails behind them. So it could be a, a document. Uh, or documentation um, of the early people having seen an event in the sky. Uh, they obviously were great sky watchers. Uh, in the in the Lenape tradition, the the, uh, the women, the Native American women, were the ones who were the sky watchers. But mm-hmm. that makes yeah. sense because they were also the ones who did the planting. Yes, that's so. true. Well, we got to take a break here, and when we come back, let's uh, talk about those patterns that are revealed by your research with uh, Glenn Kreisberg. And the book, of course, is Spirits in Stone, The Secrets of Megalithic America, Baron Company, available at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Yeah, this is Ziggy Marley saying love, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Eronimus. One love, ya. Well, this is one of the most interesting interviews, you know. Over the years, I've been doing interviews, but this one is very special. <laughs> we got a copy of the book. And then all of a sudden, my daughter wanted a copy of the book. And then my wife wanted a copy of the book. That's how important we feel this book is. Now, Glenn, uh, what patterns are revealed by your research? Well, I think um, it's safe to say that the patterns that are revealed are a relationship between these sites and um their locations, their relationship to each other, and their relationship to events occurring in the heavens. So by that, I mean that many of these sites display uh, alignments, uh, either an alignment with another site or a series of sites that connect to a point or are pointing to a place on the horizon where the sun is going to rise or set, usually on the longest or shortest days of the year or on the equinox um, when the days are evenly split between light and dark. So um, these types of patterns certainly are not new. Uh, We've seen them, if you're familiar with David Overton's book, um, 
the secret architecture, the secret architecture of our nation's capital. Oh yes, he was a good, you, dear friend of ours. A uh, wonderful book and opened my eyes to the to the Masonic tradition of the uh, layout of the uh, of our capital and how many of the roads and avenues are set at the angles that align with these uh, solstices and equinoxes and in some cases um, the rise and, and setting of of, uh, of Venus the morning star. So they were clued in. They were definitely clued into something uh, much much more ancient than than just the uh, the, the founding of our country. Um, and, um, of course, many of those, many of those, uh, alignments are not recognized or even known or even realized today because, uh, modern construction have blocked them because people were not aware that these, uh, originally were intended to align with the sun shining down the avenue at a certain day, a certain time. Um, but if we go back further, the Anastasi, the ancestral Hopi, uh, uh, Gary David's book, Star Cities of the Southwest, documents oh, how yeah. over many generations they moved their habitations uh, and their, their encampments and their, their homes um, perfectly along the solstice alignments. Uh, and I found that very fascinating. So it's, a, it's an ancient tradition, this pattern of building and aligning monuments with, uh, with events in the sky. And we're just very disconnected with that that kind of uh, belief today. Um, so we were kind of blind to it. But um, if you, if you know the angles, if you know the, the, you know, where to expect to see these events happen um, and, and, and at our uh, longitude up in here in upstate New York of 42 degrees North, the angles are, uh, you know, fixed. So we understand what they are when you do the measurements, different, uh, it's different, plotting them on the map as as to um, measuring them in the field with the compass because you have um, you have a, a difference of about 14 degrees due to declination so you have to make those corrections but if you if you know where to look and when to look uh, and you're at the right place at the right time you can you can uh, document these events and and understand that there is a pattern uh, there was a wonderful wonderful uh, researcher who's passed away named Enrique Angura who used to run the the, um, the tours of the chambers in Putnam County, these wonderful megalithic chambers that many of them have their entrances aligned to the winter solstice sunrise. And, uh, you know, Enrique was in there every, in the 60s and 70s, every December 21st, you know, freezing his ass off with his Super 8 film camera, uh, you know, shooting footage of the sun coming in uh, right at sunrise and shooting a light dagger to the back of the of the chamber. Um, so, you know, these patterns are there, they, they hold up, they, they're, they're still existing today. Uh, you just have to kind of read the landscape, understand, uh, where they might occur and, and, um, position yourself so that you can witness them if, and when they do, uh, it's really fun and fascinating and, and, um, and opening. And, you know, I, I, like I said, Enrique, uh, did this, uh, there were other folks, if you are familiar with um, James Maver and Byron Dix's book, Manitou, The Sacred Landscape of New England's Native Civilization, that very much influenced me and, and motivated me and inspired me uh, to look into our region of upstate New York and the Catskills and Schwangok Mountains to look for these types of sites that were documented in uh, New England, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Massachusetts by uh, Byron Dix and James Maber, who were no lightweights. These guys were serious, oh. uh, you know, engineers and, and architects and, and uh, brought a, a true science to it and 
presented that in that book, Manitou. Yes, they certainly certainly did. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, your your book must contain about three hundred and twenty-five thousand photos, and they <laughs> are. And all right, okay. So I'm exaggerating a little bit, I, but I'm just you know doing the same thing our president does all the time. Uh, there were <laughs> that really they are fabulous. They are. You took them, didn't you? Most of them, I did. Yeah, yeah. If I, if I came across one that was exceptional that somebody else took, then you stole uh, it, huh? I, I would ask permission. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and there's a few of them in there because the you know people are always sending me stuff and um, and sometimes I can't resist and I say, oh, I'd like to put this in the book. Do you mind if I, I use that photo or you know? Uh, so yeah, the the pictures tell the story um, and uh, you know I. I and yeah, it's part of getting out in the woods and taking a hike and going to look at these things. You take some pictures, you come back, and you know you can remember. Yeah, well, I, I I loved, I absolutely loved the boulders. Um, <laughs> the boulders, these large boulders. Some really in the shape. Some of them, you, you you don't have to use too much imagination to see a boulder that is a, a worth. Uh, I don't know. I mean, how many tons? But but uh, is it in the, in the shape of a a cat's head? That, sure, isn't that beautiful? Yes, a, a few examples of them, and yeah, these are probably ten ton stones. Um, the one in North Salem, uh, very well known in Westchester County, and the one out there in um, in Pennsylvania at uh, at the um, Council Rock site, uh, they're almost identical. It's quite a, it's quite amazing. Um, you know, you look at these things. And you say, okay, the same influence, the same idea, this you know, maybe the same people um, created these things. Um, the chapter on, on Council Rock uh, uh, by Dave Gutowski, who discovered that site and purchased that land uh, to protect it, uh, those are amazing boulders up there. You're right. Um, one looks like a cat's head. One he calls the whale stone. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. One looks like a bird, the bird stone. Oh, the bird stone is uh, terrific. Yes, yeah, you, one, your birdstone, your birdstone inspired me yesterday, and I was at the, one a steeplechase race uh, yesterday, and uh, they had a, I found a tie that had little blue birds on it that were about the same shape as uh, the birdstone, and I, of course, <laughs> I, I have about fourteen billion ties, many of which I'll never wear except my yellow submarine ties, uh, but but I mean it's just un. It's fascinating. It really is. It's, and then the, all the different turtles, as you mentioned, all kinds of them, some with their mouths open, um, etc. You know, it's just such, such a thrill to read this book. When I came into incarnation in this particular life, uh, my love of books in other previous lifetimes uh, just led me to believe that, boy, I want to make sure people read and continue to read. But right now, we got to take our Final break here for first hour, and we'll be back next hour. And we will continue with what aspects and features are in common with similar sites around the world. Now here, Sir Paul McCartney, if you're listening tonight, you've got to pay attention to what we're going to talk about next hour. Okay? We'll be back in just a few minutes with Spirits and Stones, Secrets of the Megalithic America, Baron Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And our guest, of course, is 
Glenn Kreisberg, Spirits and Stone, Kreisberg, sorry. My, bo- my boss always corrects me. Kreisberg, Spirits and Stone, The Secrets of Megalithic America, published by Bear and Company, available at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble, and on the links at the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Glenn, what aspects and features are in common with similar sites around the world? Sir Paul McCartney, wake up. Listen to this. <laughs> well, in the book, I... Um... I do examine important sites around the world for insights into ancient megalithic culture. And one of the things that I find in common is that in Northeast America as in elsewhere, um, the pattern revealed through the landscape archaeology and, and the eye of archaeoastronomy speaks to the sophisticated belief system uh, of an ancient population that understood the complex movements of the night sky and integrated those beliefs into their lives and into the worldview. I think as in other places, um, here they accomplished this through the cultural practice of celestial observation, uh, landscape manipulation, and monument construction, as well as through their travels and contacts with peoples from other regions and parts of the world. Um, of course, this is, this is controversial information. In the Northeast, this is generally not... Uh, accepted um, by the historians, I, I you know I know the um, the archaeologists locally. We've got uh, um, Marilyn Johnson at Vassar. We've got Joseph Diamond at, at SUNY New Paltz. We've got Christopher Linder at Bard College. They're all wonderful archaeologists, but none of them would agree with most of what's in this book. Uh, the premise being that the Native Americans built in stone. Uh, and, and in some cases align those stone constructions to the movements of the heavens and events on the horizon. That's just not accepted in the Northeast. But throughout the rest of the world and throughout the, the, the in fact, the, the Western Hemisphere and the Southwest and Central America and Mexico and South America with the Inca and um, all these cultures are credited with having built in stone and having, having uh Perform celestial observations and, and had that be an important part of their their um, life and belief system and worldview, but the natives in the Northeast are not credited with such, and I think that's a, a terrible disservice. It's a great their, disservice. It is because they they were brilliant. They they were creative. They had the ingenuity. They had the the time uh, to to develop this, and you know that's that's the prejudice of of. of and maybe it's a convenient truth or untruth that there was no civilization in the Northeast before the uh, Europeans arrived. There was a great mm-hmm. civilization that went back 10,000 years. We have places along the Hudson River, uh, again, that the, ar- that the archaeologists uh, uh, admit have been continually inhabited for 10,000 years. Yeah. So this doesn't fit in the paradigm of, of, the, of the savage hunter-gatherer who roamed the land just, you know, barely eking out an existence in in uh, post-glacial uh, environments. Um, you know, the people who first showed up in the Northeast and in the Hudson Valley, these were master survivalists. They had come from other parts of the world where, um, uh, you know, uh, belief systems have been developed and, and um, uh, being in unity with the land and with nature was... was uh, very much a part of existence and they they um you know knew how to exploit the features and the resources of a region to uh, make a good life for themselves and and 
that's uh, that's pretty well understood. But um, the the crediting them with having really had the wherewithal to create and and sustain a civilization and develop um, sophisticated belief systems, um, they they're they're you know they don't they don't just make it in the view of the scholar and historians of the of um, of our you know of our area. Uh, but I do have to say that is starting to change. Thankfully, it is. Um, there, there, there are um, uh, researchers uh, that I could name: Curtis Hoffman, UMass, uh, Bridgewater. Um, he's been doing a lot of research in this area. Um, in 2014, there was a wonderful symposium held at Colgate University, hosted by Anthony Avini, and. Um, Ivini is really probably the premier archaeoastronomer of, of America, uh, but he's done most of his work in, work in Central and South America. He he, he does not um, or had not considered that some of the things that he had worked on in, in Central and, and South America were uh, um, translatable to upstate New York, but he found out, and, and again, there it was this symposium, the Stars and Stones Symposium at Colgate University in December 2014, where um, oh, that was really something. Yeah, he he hosted that with um, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name right now. She's the cultural resource manager for Fort Dix. She works for the Army, and she discovered a calendar site up there in Fort Dix, um, in upstate New York, that um, you know, uh, displayed a lot of these aspects that we've been discussing. There were effigies, bare effigies. There were alignments with star rises. There were alignments with the solstices and equinox. And she brought this to, uh, you know, when they first discovered these things. And it's an interesting story because, of course, this is a um, a, uh, a military base. And I think they were looking to they were looking to uh, put a perimeter fence up or replace a perimeter fence or something, move a fence. And part of that was they had to do a, an assessment of the land and the people who were looking at where they were going to put this fence came back to the cultural resource manager and said, we found these unusual stone piles. We don't know what the heck they are. And she didn't know what they were. So she started researching uh, Lori Rush. Lori Rush is oh, her name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's the archaeologist for um, for the army up there in the Adirondacks. And she came up with this beautiful site, this calendar site, effigy site, um, uh, archaeoastronomy site, and she brought it to the attention of Tony Avini at Colgate. And it was such a big deal that they held a, uh, a conference and invited. And this is really why it was an important moment, because they didn't just in, in, in had the academics there. They also had the government regulators from the um, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife and from the Department of Interior and Parks and from the New York State Department of Historic Preservation. And the third aspect was they also invited the tribal preservation officers. So you had Doug Harris, who's the TPO for the Narragansett, and you had uh, preservation officers from the Wampanoag and from some of the tribes up in Ontario come down to Colgate for this event, uh, which was held in the, um, I believe it's called the Tongue Visualization Center, which is a beautiful uh, uh, planetarium where they could actually put this stuff up on the up on the ceiling, up on the on the roof, uh, the days and the dates of these events, and they went through uh, some of the mythologies of the native tribes to try to understand how they related to the sky, and um, and it was a very important day because there was a coming together of these three different groups: the the regulators, the the academics, and the natives, um, all 
kind of for the first time on the same page, recognizing these types of sites and um, and and acknowledging that they exist in our region. And uh, you know, um, Nancy Hunt, who is the uh, New York State archaeologist, you know, it basically said this had not been on her radar. She did not know that things like this existed in our area, but now that she was made aware, she would begin to look, uh, you know, through a new set of eyes at some of these um, some of these sites that are being threatened. And that's really what it, what the message, one of the messages of the book is the importance of preserving these sites, recognizing them uh, for their sacredness, for their the ceremonial purpose, uh, some of which are still used to this day, uh, kind of in a clandestine way. But these sites are still visited. Um, you do still find, uh, you know, s burnt offerings of sage and, and things like that. Um, you know, they, they could be New Agers. They could be um, Native Americans uh, who are still practicing their belief system and coming to these sites. Um, it's 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 hard to say, but there is a very important aspect to preventing um, destruction of these sites and also protecting them um, so that uh, they're not misused by by the public. Well, obviously, I, I'm a bit disappointed with our particular administration and their treatment of the Native Americans. Uh, we destroy their, their sacred water areas. And who's responsible? Well, our president is at war with them, along with the Koch brothers. They will do anything and everything to destroy them. I'm not exaggerating. This has been going on for a long, well, since not just our, this president, but, but the extreme, extreme right, dislike, hate Native Americans in general. Not all of them, but in general. And it is just, this is one of the reasons why my wife and I and, and, and uh, Laura and I have written books dealing with the importance of the Native Americans in regards to uh, so much of this country and the founding of this country. And I uh, I can't feel anything but deep anger at all these Native Americans that have been destroyed, their children dying, and just, well, with the, with the Koch brothers, it has a lot to do with fracking. They want to frack all over the place. Uh, and the, if you take a look at what's happened to Georgia and other states that have used fracking, it's it's obvious that it is not a good thing to do. Now, excuse me, I had to get on that, get on my soapbox on that uh, particular such situation. Oh no, that's that's uh, that's fine. I'm I'm agreeing with you in what you're saying. It's a uh, you know a terrible lack of respect for the environment, um, a total disregard for um, any kind of personal integrity uh, that would allow you to 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 do such a thing. Um, it's it is distressing and uh it needs to be met kind of head on and when you see the things that took place um out west as you as you alluded to with the threatening you know the standing stone and and um the threatened water supply uh these people were fighting for their lives and That's of right. course fighting against uh, and in very unfair odds a uh, a force that you know is almost unstoppable and against people that just don't tell the truth. They don't. Our president has not told the truth about this. And I, what was that? 
story. I don't know if it was in the Washington Post or recently. They have counted 2,800 or so absolute lies by this particular president. Honestly. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, I think it was Dick Comey, not that I'm a huge fan, but when he said untethered to the truth, that's a perfect, perfect description. Yes. Of, uh, of Donald Trump uh, and, and just how he how he um, conducts himself. He very, very no relationship to the truth at all. Unashamed liar. And um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to get into politics here because that's not we're here what we're here to talk about and who knows what your listenership is all about and uh it, it's it's uh it's a shame and what i'd like to stress about the message of some of these sites if you talk to the native americans about their spiritual beliefs and what they think the message or the meaning of these stone sites are for them it comes down to harmony and balance right and having harmony and balance in their life harmony and balance uh, in, in in their relationship to the world and nature, uh, something that we are just lacking, uh, you know, some of us more or less than others. But uh, when you talk about the current administration, we're talking about a complete lack of harmony and balance. And yeah, yeah you're right. There is you know, none. There is none. It's on display. They're right. all they're on display. That's, <laughs> that's 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 a pretty good. From uh, that aspect, uh, you know, I'm laughing right now, but it's so pathetic. It's truly pathetic because the world is looking at us as uh, as many of them as we're fools. Men, the, the, those people that supported this kind of lying and cheating have nothing to do with the basis of what Americans are all about. It's just the opposite. And for them not to be called out, the Republicans basically are not going to say anything about it because they're they're scared to death of them absolutely scared of this man and for good reason because we're the more stuff that's going to be dug out on him in the next oh, couple of months i think would be enough to be frightened anybody as to what kind of person that was and of course my boss is saying time out for a break here on 21st century radio which we will do hi i'm michael a cremo i'm author of the book forbidden archaeology and i'm very happy to be on 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. It is a fascinating show, intellectually groundbreaking, presenting alternative points of view on all areas of science and popular culture. Now, let's get back to Glenn. Glenn, are you still with us? I'm here. I hear you. Okay. All right. You're up and at them now, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, now, what purpose do these types of sites serve then and now? Well, that's part of the mystery of understanding them. Um, in, in, in looking at uh, other sites worldwide and trying to understand their use and, and see if there's a similar purpose in, behind these sites, um, you have to look at the practices that that may have taken place at these locations uh, by the ancient people who, who built in and utilized them. And they were probably utilized for, for generations and generations in, in a similar way. Um, you know, uh, John Burke in his studies uh, of the chambers in Putnam County identified electromagnetic hotspots or anomalies uh, 
associated with the entrances of some of the chambers. So these would be places where the Earth's own electromagnetic field uh, is spiking or in that in that particular location, usually due to the, the uh, geologic features, the type of rock that's in the ground locally um, and how it's configured uh, can cause uh, fluctuations uh, in the Earth's electromagnetic field. So it's interesting that they identified these associated them with chambers. Um, Burke's also, some of uh, John Burke's work in Karnak in, in France showed that the um, all of the north and south axes of the stones were aligned. So each stone has a magnetic north and south axis, uh, each large uh, megalithic stone. And he uh, determined that they were all lined up with the norths on one end and the south on the other, kind of like a uh, the analogy would be a particle accelerator, a lot of magnets with um, all their polarities aligned to uh, increase the um, uh, particle acceleration. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of clues here and trying to bring them all together and understand what these purposes were. Uh, I guess for me, the common denominator is that they were probably sites where um, where people gathered and took place, took part in ceremonies to alter their state of consciousness. And this was um, possibly for different reasons, but usually to facilitate some type of communication with the spirit world or the, the, the another dimension or another realm um, where wisdom was, was sought um, or, or um, uh, so I think you know that is that is certainly one of the main reasons these sites were built as as temples or places where um, people could take part in, in in raising their consciousness and connecting with the spirit world. But I also think they served other purposes, and and that would probably relate today to what we would call science, uh, but not um, necessarily. In, this, in the sense that we understand science, because we, of course, describe science with terms that the um, Greeks gave us, hydrology, uh, you know, geology, uh, scientific and technical terminology didn't exist before the Greeks. But, of course, there was observation of nature by humans, and the way they recorded it uh, a lot of times was an allegory or through some symbolism. And a lot of these sites contain those types of symbols, those kinds of symbols that um, that uh, you know we would relate to to um, a scientific principle, perhaps. Uh, you know, you could you could um, you could say that the mountain provides pure water and sustenance to the people, um, be, and, and without understanding that there's some type of um, um, you know, static hydraulic force that's taking place in, in in pressure that's making the water come out of the mountain in a spring. So, you know, there's a, there's science there, but there's also um, allegory and symbolism that 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 uh, is is how it's expressed through through um, through these megalithic sites. And and you know, it's it's not a a uh, easy puzzle to put together. Uh, Karnak, there's a chapter in the book on Karnak based on the um, translation of the research from Pierre Moreau, who a lot of people are probably not familiar with because his work was never translated into English uh, before we did in this book. Uh, 
but he uh, has a wonderful theory where he believes Karnak and the Standing Stones there uh, acted as a as a uh, ancient seismograph that allowed them to study the movements of the Earth, the tremors that took place in the Earth, and to record them and, and measure them. So while while there was a aspect of of spirituality, I think there was also an aspect of practicality. Uh, these these sites um, with the astronomy, with the geology and the geography, and, uh, you know, they really represented in some way earth science centers of their time where people came to learn and to practice and to um, create um, in, in relationship and in harmony and balance with the, the greater world around them, the universe and their, the, um, the different planes of their existence, be it uh, celestial or, or the underworld or, where they exist, um, you know, in the world of living. So, um, so, you know, when you try to say, were they used for just one thing? I don't think you can. No, I think you can say they were used many. for many different things. Um, we, we by some very smart and in, 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 ingenious, you know, genius people. Yes. Well, um, certainly they had a lot of geniuses amongst them because if your philosophy is trying to maintain your balance, uh, which I think is key, is key to our attaining higher consciousness. Uh, you know, I found Chapter 13, Mission Malta, Exploring Sounds and Energy Properties of Ancient Architecture, just so fascinating. Um, could you talk, talk a little bit about that particular chapter? Because you, sure. you did touch on uh, altering consciousness through communicating with other realms. Yes, and, and I, I think that was a big part of the temple, uh, purpose of the temples at Malta, the mm -hmm. society, the ancient culture that existed on Malta um, uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, a matriarchal society. It's, in, it's interesting to note. Uh, I think the women kind of ran the show there, uh, and it was also a very peaceful culture. For thousands of years, it existed. Uh, it was preliterate. They had no form of writing, but they had art. And they. Uh, and what's interesting to note is that there are no depictions in any of the uh, ancient Malta culture inscriptions or artwork of anything pertaining to uh, war or violence or invasion. You know, no, no, no spears or shields or chariots or uh, you know depictions of battles. Apparently, they lived for peace in peace and harmony for. Uh, thousands of years uh, on Malta, creating this temple culture. And as I explained earlier, these temples have a very uh, specific um, configuration to their architecture. Uh, there are no um, there are no sharp edges. Everything is very rounded. Um, maybe as a reflection of the uh, goddess figure that mm -hmm. was revered, and many um, archaeological. Uh, uh, findings support this um, goddess figure, a very um, uh, large, zoptic woman who probably had a great voice. And, oh, uh, boy, was that neat. <laughs> no, really, it was, it was. I began. I was able to understand more about that, that symbolism of it. I, I'm sorry, I couldn't help. Oh, that's that fine. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and there, it, it, in fact, those goddesses and their voices may have been the... Um, the impetus to what are known as the sirens in the Greek yes. mythology. Yes. Uh, of course, Greek mythology was, you know, which is thousands of years old, refers to a time that's thousands of years before the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And when many of these uh, unusual creatures inhabited 
the uh, mythological creatures inhabited the um, the islands and the coasts around the Mediterranean, and these these sirens, these women with great voices that in some ways were used as weapons, may have been kind of the secret behind the Maltese, uh, the Malta temple culture and the goddess figures who who um, who ruled there. Um, and 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 you know, I I don't want to say that it was simply a, a um, feminine ruled culture. It may have been a culture that there was a a, a proper balance between the roles of men and women, uh, as existed with Native American culture. There was a, a strong prominence on, on the woman's role and in leadership in, in the group. And, um, and there was a balance. And of course, we don't have any such balance today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may have been the secret uh, to society's living for, for many, many uh, generations in, in peace and, and uh, in harmony and in balance, uh, that relationship between the men and the women and how they worked it out. Um, so, um, Malta is a fascinating place. If anybody uh, ever has the chance to visit there, it's wonderful. The climate is great. The people are friendly. Uh, they speak English. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive and, um, and it's a beautiful mix of the ultra, ultra ancient, uh, with the, um, you know, with, uh, with modern conveniences. Um, so I, I highly recommend Malta as a, as a place to visit. And, and great photos. Great photos. Once again, did you take uh, many of these photos? Uh, yeah, the Malta ones, yes. That was this car- the there. carved wave guide, sealing channel. Is oh, it- in, the, in the Hippogeum, yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, fascinating. Oh, this is the, the, the uh, under, under, So some of these temples, like the Hippogeum, is, uh, is located underground mm-hmm. and was actually a necropolis, a burial vault for the dead, a city of the dead. Um, uh, only discovered in 1900 by accident. This, this amazing three-leveled, uh, underground carved from coralline limestone, uh, beautiful, beautiful chambers, very aesthetic. Uh, you know, a thousand, a thousand, I believe a thousand years before the pyramids. Uh, you know, these are quite, quite ancient and, um, you know, just mind boggling really in, in, in how they, they pulled this off and, and created these, these beautiful forms. There, very but impressive. there are so many other wonderful chapters in here um we'd never have time to to really get to them all and but that's the reason why i had to read every word in this book i mean it just uh it was exciting from the standpoint of i knew what i wanted to do it took me it took me about uh, a week to read your book um because uh and one of these days if we ever get together i'm going to show you my copy of the book, your book, in which every every page is written on. Every page <laughs> is highlighted. This book has now become my resource for, uh, I, I can find any piece of information I want now by, by having uh, read the, this thing in, in some detail and taking my time. Great job, really. I, I can't overemphasize that. It's so thrilling to me because... Uh, my interest in this work was back there in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and you have carried this work so much further. Uh, that's why I'm so thrilled by it. I didn't. I never thought uh, this was this was going to be opened up again in in this kind of way with the quality of the publication, reliable information, uh, which which is really key because in the past, even though many of these other researchers that we've interviewed. Uh, they they were some of the first that got involved in it, and of course they made some mistakes. 
Um, but God bless them all and yourself. But, oh, we got to take a break here while we're blessing everybody. Yes, indeed, I was going to be a priest at one time. <laughs> and when I uh, when I focused on the, uh, uh, well, I won't get into that, uh, but it changed my mind. Hello, I'm Michael Bastine, co-author of Iroquois Supernatural, and you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And we hope you enjoy all the work that we're doing for the people. Glenn, who made these? Uh, who made these things, and when? Well, I think the most likely candidates for the ones in the Northeast are the Native American tribes that have inhabited this area uh, since the end of the last ice age. There are other theories. There are folks who, um, yeah, if you go back twenty or thirty years, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, feelings that there was a Celtic influence, uh, that there may have been some visitations from groups from other parts of the world that may have influenced some of this. And I don't, I don't discount that entirely. Um, I just think that it's, it's quite possible that the very first people who came to this uh, region, um, came from places where these types of beliefs were already taking place uh sun worship um uh goddess goddess worship these were some of the very first uh, religious practices of the people who uh wandered the globe um i do think there is a uh there is room for early um pre-columbian transoceanic voyages to have brought people here uh you know not necessarily Ten or twelve thousand years ago, but three or four thousand years ago, um, and and through diffusion, spread their ideas. Uh, they could have influenced some of the native tribes and, and uh, groups that were already here. An exchange of ideas, cultural uh, cross pollinization. I think a lot of that took place. Um, you know, you have uh, civilizations in the Midwest of America, the Adena, the Hopewellian, uh, early Mississippian cultures who were mound builders and built great cities and structures uh, of earth, uh, earthen mounds. Um, the Ohio Serpent Mound is a great example, a Cahokia. Yeah. But they also were, were uh, influencers and were influenced by other cultures um, who they came in contact with. And certainly a lot of the mounds that we see in the Northeast made of stone are still mounds made by mound builders. They just used whatever material they had. And here it happened to be stone because in the Catskills, you got more stone than you got earth. Uh, you know, if you ask any of the farmers around here, they'll tell you, you're not going to be growing any big crops unless you're in the, in the, in the, uh, Valley floor, mm -hmm. which is where all the soil on the slopes has, uh, has eroded and washed away down to, uh, since the end of the last ice age. Um, so I do think it's the indigenous population uh, who inhabited this region for thousands of years who built many of these. In some cases, they may be memorials. Uh, in some cases, actual burial sites, although there would be nothing but the stone left. I mean, it, with the kind of environment you have in the Northeast, uh, the type of fauna, the, 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 the flora, the uh, um, climate, uh, things it's not like the desert. Things don't last. Um, they mm -hmm. deteriorate very quickly. Uh, any bone, any leather, any wood, uh, you know, 
forget 500, you know, forget 5,000, even 500 years ago, it's probably not going to remain unless it's stone. And that's pretty much what the record is uh, in the ground around here of the native population. It's, it's stone artifacts. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these stone mounds and, and effigy walls are not considered artifacts by the historians. And that's why many of these sites kind of fall between the, um, the gaps of classification when it comes to archaeology and anthropology. They're, they, they're kind of the, um, you know, the redheaded stepchild. They get very little attention. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's a shame, but it is changing. As I mentioned, there are more and more researchers who are be beginning to believe and understand that, that uh, sites like this uh, do exist and they're important. And they, they really shouldn't be ignored. Certainly shouldn't. You know, I think, uh, you know, being an author, do you know that no matter what happens, uh, you usually can't fit all the information in a book that you really want to, you, it, you know. So uh, what's not in this book that you wish was? Well, that's true. Being an author, you know, you work with deadlines. So um, when you're doing research, uh, those the, your discoveries don't always line up with your deadlines. So oh, the deadline for this the deadline <laughs> for this right. book uh, came and went, and uh, the discoveries kept coming. So there have been a few interesting things that I've come across just in the past year or so since I've turned in the manuscript. Um, that, uh, you know, I, oh, darn, I wish, you know, I, and, you, and you call the publisher and you write an email and you say, hey, can I get one more thing in? And they're like, nope, sorry, that's it, you're done. <laughs> Store's closed. Uh, they say, wait for the next edition or, you know, gives you a reason to write another book. So um, there was a wonderful site called the Lily Pond Stone. Somebody sent me a picture of this stone up on this beautiful cliff top uh, in the Hudson Valley known as Sky Top. Uh, amazing site. Um, may have actually been a when when there were glacier lakes in, in the in the uh, interior when the glaciers were receding and there were um what you might call sky islands uh you know high points in the land that were above the glacier lakes that uh, could be inhabited sky top was probably one of those locations and this stone up there uh, beautiful, probably twenty to thirty ton boulders set up it's a dolmen really it's set up on three base stones. And it has a uh, a gap at the bottom that on the summer solstice, a shaft of light at sunset uh, penetrates through the base of the stones and projects a perfect triangle uh, um, onto the back of the uh, of, of one of the base stones. Uh, you really have to see there to to be there to and see this and appreciate it. But it only happens for a few days a year, um, and to me, it's it's a symbol of both sun worship and uh the tanit symbol that the equilateral triangle with the point up and the two points down mm -hmm. is an ancient symbol of of the tanit or the female feminine uh goddess so uh, you know to me this is a, a good example of evidence that may point to an ancient culture that both were sun goddess uh sun worshipers and goddess worshipers and um commemorated those beliefs in, in the setting up of a monument that both uh, lit up with this, this, I, a friend of mine looked at it and said, that's a glow hole because there's just this bright, beautiful triangle projecting through at the solstice onto the stone. And um, uh, to me, it represents both the, the sacred goddess and, and the sun uh, coming in conjunction at this one site. So, um, 
you know, that'll certainly be in any new book that I come, comes out or any new published research, uh, the Lily Pond Stone. Um, you know, I, I think that's an important site that's uh, just kind of come on the radar. Well, obviously, you have a message in this book. But what message do you want readers to take away from this book? Well, I guess the message would be that these sites hold a message uh, to be decoded and to understand. And, and it's probably an important message about our own existence and how we can um, fit in better with our, our world, uh, again, in balance and in harmony. Um, I, I point out uh, towards the end of the book um, how in Japan, when, when, when there was this terrible tsunami uh, from the earthquake a few years ago that destroyed the nuclear plant, um, there were articles in the newspaper I came across of this uh, early warning system up and down the coast for hundreds of miles just inland from the coast were a series of large megalithic, sto megalithic stones that were set up. Uh, the most recent one, um, 600 years ago, but these were set up for, for many, many generations and, and, and years before that. Just the, the most recent one was 600 years ago, but they date back much further and it was a early warning system in a sense in that each one of these stones uh located miles apart from each other but in the line up the coast had the same message which was to live in peace and harmony don't build your dwellings beyond this point so it was telling them where it was safe to live and where it was not safe to live and of course these warning markers were ignored and people built and developed right along the coast and inevitably a wave came along and destroyed it all. So the stones hold a message that's important to understand. If you know how to read it, uh, to read them correctly, it, it, it could in fact be life-saving. In some of these um, more monumental structures, when we talk about the pyramids and, and places like Malta and Stonehenge, many think there is encoded within them uh, the times and dates that we are most vulnerable to uh, cataclysmic events that could, um, uh, you know, alter our life and our existence. So there is an important message to understand. It's not fully decoded or understood or appreciated, but um, I think we're, we're slowly getting there. Hopefully it won't be too late. Yeah, very slowly. And we're going to pay a heavy price, an extremely heavy price, because we are not ready. We are not ready for what is coming. And what is coming is there is going to be continued flooding especially in the area of Florida, New Orleans, Houston, etc. And boy, that story, the real story about how Houston uh, became so vulnerable. People should read that. And it was about greed and it has a lot to do with we have to keep on building this and we got to do it in this kind of way. And basically, Houston may and eventually be go out of business. And so... And New York Times did an incredible story dealing on New Orleans. Four or five pages showing the problems that will not go away and will continue. And, and in Houston, they ignored the signs that the land, you know, the land held a message for them where they should and shouldn't build. And they ignored it and to their own detriment. And we ignore these messages to our own detriment. And, uh, we have to understand if we can't live in harmony with our planet, uh, you know, the planet will live without us. 
we you know we can't destroy the planet. That's right. The planet, the planet can destroy us and go right on fine without us. The planet uh, doesn't need us. Yeah, it sure doesn't. It, there, it doesn't. It needs the animals. That's for sure. It needs the vegetation, but it doesn't need us. And I'm just so saddened by the fact that we have uh, some states where you can't even talk about this being illegal. Some places in Florida, you're not allowed to talk about it, not allowed to even say the words. Uh, Total ignorance. And I think that'll lead to devastation. I want to thank you for joining us, Glenn. This has been a wonderful experience for me. Um, And I've learned so much from you. And it's wonderful to have so many good mentors who work so hard at this uh, to, to, to present this material to the public because we need to return to balance. The Native Americans knew how to do it. Um, and for them to be punished because, as, as some of the people have basically said to me, hey, who cares about the Native Americans? They didn't invent any cars. They didn't invent any our new sewing machines, that kind of stuff. That's their opinion. Thank you for joining us, Glenn. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.